I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is Ryan Niles. Ryan is the founder, president, and CEO of Niles Industrial Coatings in Fenton, Michigan, where he has led the company for close to 21 years. NIC is a best-in-class safety, coatings, and technology company focused on the commercial and industrial painting across North America. As a serial entrepreneur, Ryan has founded and led multiple companies in the home building, commercial scaffolding, commercial services, and investing arenas. Ryan is a graduate of Michigan State University with a degree in medical technology and currently in the Harvard Business School President's Program. Ryan is also a member of the Young Presidents Organization, YPO. And fun fact, Ryan and I both graduated from Grand Blank High School, so it was fun for me to connect with an old friend. I really respect Ryan's intellect and how he leads by example with humility and authenticity and putting his people first. He's created a unique learning culture within his company and is having noticeable impacts in his community. He's an incredible husband and father who leads with character and integrity and knows how to live life to its fullest. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, so let's jump right in. Ryan, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. We've had so many mutual friends asking when I was going to get you on, and I know you're super busy up there in Michigan, and my goodness, it's great to see you, and I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the podcast with me today. Absolutely, Bob. I'm, I'm excited and maybe even a little nervous. So this is going to be a fun conversation. I made an assumption there that you were in Michigan, but you're a world traveler. I, I watch uh, you and your wife travel all over the globe, interesting places, and maybe we'll get into some of those really cool trips. I know you had a, uh, some iconic experiences in Paris and driving Ferraris all over Italy with some of our YPO friends, but um, I made the assumption you were in Michigan. Are you in Michigan uh, or are you pl someplace else around the world? Uh, I am in Michigan to now, but this afternoon we'll actually be in uh, Wisconsin where uh, we've got a golf tournament in honor of my mother-in-law who passed of ALS uh, this weekend. Oh, and my so goodness. we're heading over to Whistling Straits to celebrate her. And so we've got, that's going to get started uh, tonight. We've got a nice family dinner, everybody coming back together. And then we're hosting the family back at our house. So it should be a really fun weekend, nice holiday weekend. I'm so sorry to hear uh, that news. I'm glad that you're able to get together with the family and have a, a great celebration of life. And it sounds like she was a, a very interesting uh, individual. She was great. She was great. And so she's been missed. It's been, it's been about six years now. But yep, we, we get together every year and have a, a golf outing to celebrate her and so forth. So a lot of pink clothes will be worn that day and it'll be fun. So. I tell you what, one of the things that is speaking of interesting members of your family. So you're we're talking about, it was your mother-in-law, correct? Correct. And, and, but I happened as I was preparing for this interview with you, and I, I know you pretty well. Many of our uh, listeners may not know this, that you and I actually graduated from the same high school, Grand Blank High School there in Grand Blank, Michigan. I think I was a year ahead of you. And it, it, our paths have crossed many times since then. We're both members of YPO and we're both classmates at HBS. But so I've known you, I've known of your family background, this iconic business that you have there in Genesee County. I went out to your website cause I was going to do a little due diligence and I watched the video that you have on Niles industrial coatings and how you go all the way back to the history and you start and you talk about your, your family and your, and your father and your uncles and, and, and getting started. And I was like, I'm going to make sure to put that in the show notes. Cause it is so amazing. It's so well done. 
I garnered even more respect for you as an individual. And so many of my questions are coming from specifically from that video. But one, one of the things that I, I found really interesting was the fact that you, your father and your uncles had started an amazing company and had been obviously doing very well. But here's young Ryan Niles as he's growing up in Grand Blank and getting ready to go off to Michigan State. And you're like, I want to chart my own course. I want to go do something different. And it, like, and it, that really interested me because sometimes I see friends of mine who have a really thriving and impressive family business. They're like, I can't wait to join the business. And then other people, you're like, you know what? I'm going to go chart my own course. I'm going to go do my own thing. Can we? Can you just tell me a little bit of your origin story and go all the way back to the those times of what you're thinking about and saying, no, I want to go do something different? Yeah, I started working in the business when I was probably 10. Little I remember riding around on the back of the fork truck, sitting on a propane tank kind of those days and sweeping floors with my cousins. We had, we had a lot of family in the business. And I always had really the lousiest jobs, literally shoveling up, fireproofing and just the dirtiest, nastiest jobs. There was a time in the shop where I was driving the fork truck and actually dropped a drum of safety yellow paint and the lid came off. And when you're shoveling paint, oh, no. it's a bad day. No. <laughs> when you're shoveling <laughs> paint, it's, it's yeah. something bad's yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah, so I've done that. And so, no, so I, I think I always got stuck with a lot of the not great jobs, which I think was my dad's Real goal was to get me out of the business. Mm -hmm. My dad was always like, be a doctor. Business is great when things are going well. You've always liked science. Like, you know, when things are great as a business owner, it's great. But when things are bad, they're awful. Doctors, nice, consistent. Yeah. And so that was really my path. In fact, I had a couple thousand hours of volunteer in emergency rooms. Uh, but I also worked a lot because I liked making money and having my freedom mm -hmm. and so forth. So when I turned 16, first car I had, my dad actually, the deal was he'd split it with me. So it was as much money as I could make. He was challenging me. He said, Shoot, I think you should buy a Ferrari. Yeah, like I'll, I'll match it. Which, but I had a Blazer when I turned sixteen that I paid half of, and yeah. so he just taught me a lot of really good values. I think about work ethic. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I always joke that I wished I was a better golfer, and I probably should have been growing up in Grand Blanc on a golf course. But I worked a lot, and mm -hmm. I'm grateful for those the knowledge. Now I didn't realize how just walking jobs and being with my dad, and my cousins, how much I understood the business at an early age. Mm -hmm. So it's really, I think, paid dividends. But no, my, my degree is in medical technology at Michigan State, and the plan was to get out of the family painting business. I was actually waitlisted for Michigan State's DO program. And, and at the same time, my dad sold the business. He's like, you're never going to see a deal like this come down. You should come, come to Chicago with us. It did, met the CEO of the company. He later ended up hiring me when he bought the company. And so my first two years, and then I mentioned some of this in the video, I was on his acquisition team. So was, we bought companies, it was a company called Kenny Industrial. My job was to help integrate them. And so we bought 11 companies in two years. And my first job was to integrate our family business. And I just learned a ton. That was, I would say that was my first MBA mm. understanding of, a lot about cash flow and acquisitions and a lot of the accounting principles behind it. Cause I, cause I didn't have a lot of those classes. So. Yeah, because you're, anyways, you're, you're at Michigan State, you're doing medical technology, that's your degree, but then you get sucked back into the business world. You're over in Chicago and now you're doing mergers and acquisitions and investing. And yeah, it's a pretty interesting pivot or uh, it, the, the, the name of the podcast is The Leap. That's a pretty interesting leap. It, it was an interesting leap. And it was just one of those, I think back then and, and understanding, it's just, and, and I think it was, I loved it in one of your things. It was like to, to know oneself is to lead oneself. Or you had a great quote. And, and I think. It, it took me a while to figure out who I really was and understanding that I'm not a science brain. I'm more of a creative problem solver and I'm very high DQ. And so really love connecting with people and understand people's challenges and figuring out ways to help them. And I think I would have been a good physician from that way, but the science was really challenging. 
Okay. And so just understanding how I like to lead. And so that's where and oh, I, I made the pivot and went into business, always enjoyed business. And I'd look at a little bit on signs and things. I'm a Scorpio, so I think I'm driven for dollars and cents. That's one of the things that drives me. So I was appreciated making money. And I used to always just think about how many hours I could work in a day. And if I could work 20 hours a day, I could maximize that return. Clearly, I think differently today. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> But that was, that was my focus for a lot of those early years. And I think if memory serves me correctly, you're in Chicago at this time, you're learning a lot. You, you reference it in the video that you're getting like a, a real world MBA and sometime around 2002, uh, I think you reference in the video, you actually get laid off. It's a challenging time. And you could tell it that was like an inflection point in your life and your career, but you didn't, you weren't able to unpack it in the video. But as I was watching, you could tell that, that this was a time where young Ryan Niles learns a lot. And what, what's going through your mind at that moment? Are, are you scared? Where are you at in your life? What are you learning? At the time, we, I just built a home, built it literally myself. So we, we just moved into this place, had, had some equity in it. So that was my seed capital. And I think I had 50 or $60,000 of equity in my house uh, out of the gun. But no, at first it was, I was the only Niles to get laid off because when we sold the business, I was the only Niles that wasn't working there. So I didn't have an, an employment contract. Mm -hmm. So this company was just cutting all costs. So no, to get laid off and especially it's a place where I added a lot of value. That year I was reporting the value I had to create, which I think I was making maybe a hundred, a little over a hundred grand a year then. The value I generated, I had the spreadsheet that I tracked. I generated like a $1.8 million in value. So I just couldn't get my head around getting laid off after I'd worked so hard and created what I thought was a lot of value. Mm -hmm. So no, it was hard. And then I think to start the business, I, I literally immediately went to like my cousins. I was the youngest of all the Niles. And I was like, hey, here's our business plan. We can all stick together. We can be family. And I had two cousins that kind of weren't on the same page. And they were like, no, we're out. We've been doing this together for a long time. We're not going to be partners. And I'm like, no, but we all stick together. That's what grandpa taught us. And yeah. that's how our dads have been successful. We're way stronger together. And after probably a couple of weeks of having these kind of conversations of trying to rally everybody together, I quickly learned it was going to be me by myself. We went to the bank when I say we, it was my dad and I to get a line of credit, to get the business going. And immediately they're like, we'll need Dan to sign. And my dad's like, I can't sign. He's like, I've got a, a you know, non-compete. He's like, how am I going to let my son fail if I got to work nights or weekends? Mm -hmm. I think the bank gave us a couple hundred thousand line, dollar line of credit for just me at the beginning. Wow. Which we started out the first month in business, we did just under 700 grand in revenue. And I think the first year we did just under 7 million. So I had to go to a lot of customers and ask them if they would prepay. And we came up with a lot of different creative ideas to get through that. Uh, so that was November of 2002. So you're, boot, you're bootstrapping this. It's, what's interesting is that at a moment in your, you know, when someone gets laid off, okay. We'll call it laid off, call it fired, whatever. And that can be really devastating to somebody's ego, their self-worth. It's, it, it's a, you know, like, you know, like you said, hold on, I'm creating a ton of value here. It's a low point. And at the same time, one of the things that I've told people that I, I see consistently is that at your lowest point, at your darkest hour in life, generally, that's when the seeds of your greatest successes are being planted. And people just have to have faith through those dark seasons. And so here you are, this low point. You're like, no, you know, this is what I'm going to go do. And you go do it. And you, now, you've got, now got this Niles Industrial Coatings. You're almost 21 years in, according to the timeline on LinkedIn, an iconic American company. We're going to talk about all the things that you're doing. But here you are, you're starting it by yourself, all alone, a little bit of seed capital, bootstrapping it. Yeah, it was, I think it all happened so quickly because mm -hmm. I, I just... It, 
I just did it. And, and I look back and so many things I did, I, I look back today and I raise my kids. I don't, I want my kids to be fearless. Cause I mm-hmm. think some, so many decisions I made today, if I literally looked and analyzed them, mm-hmm. I would never bet on that. And mm-hmm. he just, I wouldn't have bet on me then. It's just, you yeah. look back and say, that was crazy. Like the chances of that happening. Even the first week I started my business, I get a letter from my old employer and said, Hey, by the way, you have, your parents both have non-competes or your dad did one as well as your mom. So if they give you any money, you'll be in violation. That will be, of course. And literally they're kept being roadblocks, even trying to figure out how to have the money. Then I'm looking at my dad. I'm like, really? You sold the business for however many million and you didn't throw 10 grand in an account for your kids? Like, mm-hmm. Hey, thanks for that one. Like, yeah. So it was like just another hurdle that, that mm-hmm. we didn't have set in place before. Like you said, those, all those hurdles, I think have built us to what we are today. Getting started, that was really fun. I went to, we had so many employees that had been working for the family for decades. And what I said to all of them, I was like, listen, your first job working for me is go collect unemployment. I have no money. We'll figure it out <laughs> to get going. But literally that's how we started. This is the only time in my life I could collect unemployment. So I collected unemployment through that time. I, I used to tell everybody, kid was my sugar mama at the time. So she had a, had a paying job with healthcare. So we were pretty happy to ha- have that as an option. That was how we got started. And, and obviously with 700,000 in revenue, we had pretty good sized payrolls and more mm-hmm. labor and pencil business. So figuring out the cash flow of that, making sure we had funds to pay, pay that, pay the union benefits or do quickly. So I had to really understand cash flow really quickly because I bit off a lot that I couldn't, like I said, a 200,000 line of credit, didn't get it done to do 7 million. Yeah. So it was a really fun start. And so at the end of the day, February, the company that Kenny, that my dad had sold his business to went bankrupt when that happened and allowed my dad out of his not compete. So I actually gifted my dad 80% of the business. And so he's been my partner since then. And we've had just an awesome ride to have work with your father, have a great relationship with such great mutual respect for each other. He's taught me so much. The later years, I think I've taught him a lot mm-hmm. as well. And we've just now, we've got a great friendship. It's been a fun journey. I think since we've been in business, we maybe have had two or three disagreements. I've really been blessed to have him as a partner. Man, what, what a cool story. And one of the things that you s- mentioned a, a second ago is you talked about how important being fearless is and how you're trying to teach that to your kids. And the, the, especially if you're an entrepreneur, you literally have to have a little bit reckless abandon might be too much, right? Because we like to, as entrepreneurs, we like to take calculated risks and we want to mitigate risk where we can, but you do have to have that fearless, that trait. Let me ask you a question. As you look back, you said that certain things in your youth that you did that you're like, oh, wow, now that you're a little bit older, like maybe, maybe I wouldn't have made that bet. How, how important is it for you to protect that fearless trait and that DNA right now at this stage of your life as an entrepreneur? I know, I know a lot of people as, they, as we get older, we, we tend to get maybe a little bit more conservative, a little more cautious. Do you feel it's important to protect that and it's critical for you to continue to grow and manage your business? Or do you feel it's important to be maybe a little bit more cautious? How do you view that? No, I I think that's super critical to be, just be aware of it. Mm And I think one of the things when I think back about some of the decisions I've made, it's being introspective now today is really looking back and I, I, I can actually see pivotal points in my life that like making that decision changed it. Right. And mm-hmm. so I look back and I've got a few and, and I'll come back to your question because I think it, it piggybacks in. So being introspective, I look back and what were the big changes that, that I made? One was joining, the most important one is joining YPO. You know, surrounding yourself with people that truly I'd say want to get better, that mm-hmm. they're actually in your corner cheering for you. Mm-hmm. There's not, the world doesn't have that. There's not many people where the world wants to see you succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, the world is usually, it's a, you know, usually a relationship that's give and take. And, you know, there's very few times that there's two winners. And I think YPO really 
forces to try to find the, the great, you know, partnerships, relationships there to really see people succeed. In fact, my daughter made me recognize that she's like, dad, it's really interesting. She's like the difference between your regular friends and your YPO friends, she's like your YPO friends just want to get better. There's a guy in my forum, Scott Barry, that we were on a ski trip with him and he was focused and asking me questions on how to be a better dad, how to be better at snow skiing, how to run his business. And just a really great inquisitive guy. And my daughter completely picked up on that. She's like, it's so crazy. Joining YPO, then getting into HPS. And so I think that was really impactful through YPO. And I think the second year is, as you may remember, I didn't get in the second year. And so that was like really disappointing again. It was like one of those just really disappointments where I didn't cry, but I might have thought about it. It was like, man, I was like just a blow. Mm -hmm. And my group leader, Sean Murray, was like very impactful. I was like, no, if you want to come back, get on the ready wait list. So I did that. And he's, yeah, you're like 70. You're never getting in. So I was like so discouraged, so bummed out. And then Adam sent out a note about a week before, probably 10 days before, said, hey, I'd like for there to be a couple of people committed to being in Boston, those of you on the ready wait list, who's ready? And I responded back and said, I'd love to be there if I, if I can be, if I have a chance of it increases your ads. He's like, yeah, if you'll make a commitment to be in Boston, you'll move up from whatever, 78 to one or two. And one other person had beat me to it. So I was number two on, the, on that list. I believe Mikey Dobin was number one. And I, I get on the list. And now at the same time, I'd committed to Kim. Kim was going to Florida to be with her mom. Cause like I said, her mom was sick at the time. So I was supposed to be with the kids cause I didn't get into school. Mm -hmm. Kim and I have a great rule. We don't fight about things till they actually happen. So I'm like, it still doesn't mean I'm getting in. If I got to fly to Boston, I might be flying to Boston to fly back. I'll handle what's going on with childcare. The whole time she says, we need to talk about this. I'm like, we don't have time to talk about it. I was literally studying nonstop. And so it amazed me when you really want something, how much you can get done. I got through all those case studies, all that homework. In the course of 10 days, at the same time, I knew I was going to have this big open window because I wasn't going to be in Boston. So mm -hmm. I, I delayed a couple of things for work. I had a, a big review with Dow Chemical that we had every other year that, of course, I procrastinated. So I had to get through the review. I literally remember being in Dow Chemical office, studying Harvard cases, yeah. but like waiting to come into this meeting. I'm like, <laughs> so I'm carrying around like my Harvard binder along with like my Dow presentation. What are you doing? I'm like, cramming for this. Of course, yeah. they're like, can I go to lunch afterwards? I'm like, not an option. Every place I was driving, I was listening to my cases. Yeah like studying literally on the toilet. It was like crazy, but I got through it all. And I think after giving through that and coming in prepared, it was like another one of those turn points of, God, if I can be prepared and do that. I had just a great year. Kim was my leader that year and just had a great impact on me. So like looking through a couple of those, and then we had some really great cases that were really impactful for me at HVS. I had one that was the willingness to pay with Francis Fry. Oh man, and what a great one. one. And that's the one where I think this triggered where you went to, hey, playing not to win, playing to lose. And so what happened for that is we had the case, minus the pay, and I came back and it changed the way I thought about my business. My business was always my uncles and everybody said, know your cost, market up a fair percentage. Construction's 30%, know your cost. And if you know your cost of the penny, your competitors will be too lazy to get to that detail. So if you know your cost and you market up 30%, you'll be cheaper and you'll win all the work you ever want. Mm -hmm. And so it's okay. That's one strategy. And it's a, sim it's a simple said, equation. Yeah. And Francis Fry Thompson always said, know what the market is and know what they're willing to pay. Mm -hmm. And so at the time we, we'd started a scaffold company in 2015 and we were non-union, the scaffold company is, and we had a competitive advantage and, and I wanted to be union. I, I growing up always being union. The painting side was union, but the carpenter's pension fund was really underfunded. So I didn't want to sign up with a, with a pension where 
hey, Bob, you worked for me for 20 years. Hey, I bought a nice boat. I'm going to Florida. What's going on with your pension as my scaffold builder? Oh yeah, by the way, they just cut my pension in half. What's mm-hmm. happened with the Teamsters and other places? So I just could see the future and what that was looking like. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I, I just made a decision. I, I didn't think we should be union in that space. So we ended up being non-union on the scaffold team. So we built our scaffold company up. And at the same time, after having this case, they're the renewing the bid. We had to rebid the scaffold specifically. And I remember having a call with my dad. And my dad says, well, this is a really important bid. So I've got, you know, now my dad's for this January till May in Florida. So he comes back and says, I've got to look at this. I said, versus the people that bid it every day. You've got to be the hero that's got to come back and look at this. So there's a couple of different things here. One, I've got to coach my dad. We got to trust our people. Mm-hmm. Step away. Mm-hmm. And you can. So he's like, okay, good point. I'll let Paul and Kurt bid it, but I'm still going to put a number together. I'm like, I'm certain you are, and I can't wait to see your number. <laughs> but keep that right? private between me and you. <laughs> exactly. But then I said, most of the time we would bid work and people would get it. And then we would have a meeting of like how we're going to execute it. I said, let's do it backwards. Let's have a meeting before the bids do. I want everybody to come in and let's really strategize on the pricing structure. So that was a newer concept for mm-hmm. us at the time to really spend a couple of days on just pricing strategy. So we come in and I started that meeting kind of to your question of like risk taking. And I said, listen, dad, I don't know where you, you know, I actually went around the room and said, Paul Kerr, I don't know where you guys are at, but I bet I know where dad is. You know, dad's early sixties. He's playing not to lose. I'm betting his price, you know, his 2% over last year. So the three-year contract, he's probably increased his price 6%. And I can tell you 100%, we will get the work. 100%. There's like, I would bet. All, every dollar I own, we will get the work. The bad news is I think inflation and everything else is going to be greater than that. And we're not going to be able to buy new trucks. We need some new inventory. We're not going to be able to invest in ourselves. So I just think that we're not going to go there. Mm-hmm. And I said, Paul, Kurt, I'm really curious to see what you guys think, but I want to set the opposite side of where I think we should be. I said, I think we should triple our price. And Paul said, there's no way. Yeah, you're like, you- like, I grew up in this small town. They're going to laugh me out of town. I play softball with these people. There's just no way. It's one of those things we're having one of these just great conversations. Corner having a heart attack. My dad literally was like, I think his heart was palpitating. Yeah. I think he might've got up and went out and got water and came back to the arms. Like, like, what what, what was is my son drinking? What is going on here? Exactly. And so, so I challenged Jim. I said, why, why do you think I came up with that number? And they're like, because you're crazy, you're greedy, whatever else it was. I said, no. I said, listen, we have to understand our value. And, and so what the reason I came up with triple is what's our pricing outside of Dow? They're like, any, it's, it's double anyway, maybe even a little bit more. I said, exactly. Our hit ratio is our hit ratio is like 87%. It's, is that good? And I said, on the coding side, our hit ratio of over a 30 year run is like 18%. I said, so at the end of the day, yeah, like 80%, like that's way too high. We're way, our pricing is way too low. We're way below the market. And so we got to really understand that. So at the end of the day, we ended up going back and forth. We then looked at some different points. We looked at what our union competitors would be because First one we're looking at is it's, they're going through the list of, okay, there's Bob Scaffold Company. So Bob's got three people. He's not really a competitor, right? So I'm like, who are our true competitors that can really do this work? And so at the end of the day, we looked and most of them were union. We had one non-union guy, but then that non-union guy paid his people a lot better than we did at the time. Mm-hmm. I said, listen, he's paying his people better. We can't stay down at this low price and the customer's willing to pay more. And you have to get, find that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, we, we, we doubled our price at that time, which did a couple of things. One, we were low bid. We were blown by still 13%. I had a good relationship with the buyer that time. We still could have pushed a little further. Okay. My team wore me down a little bit. A little, little <laughs> they bit. beat you up a little bit, softened yeah, you. Yeah, and the adversity of risk. So, so they, they beat us down a little bit. But then there's what we did. Two things had to happen is after we were told we had the job, that we were a little bit, then we negotiated some of the T's and C's of the contract. 
And as what was interesting is just having high trust with, with your partner. Dow quickly realized that, that we doubled their price. And he's like, how am I going to explain this to my boss? And we went through and I said, listen, the first thing we're going to do is buy several million dollars of the pickup trucks. I don't know if you looked at our trucks and then we invested in our people and we invested in training. And so it wasn't that our margin escalated and it improved a little bit mm-hmm. from the pricing, but I think it improved more from the culture and what we did once we started investing in the people and our equipment. And that's what drove the margin, not the pricing. And I think people miss that so often. And in fact, the last few years, when pricing stays flat, we've found ways to innovate that have made us we actually increase our margin. And so that's where it's like, what you realize is if I went with my uncle's old way, which is just know your cost and market up, you're giving away the value you create. You mm-hmm. invent something that's 50% faster than your competitor, but you go with that cost, you're giving away all the value. And so that was like a really pivotal lesson. Mm. I'm both willingness to pay, understanding the value you can create. Culture is a, such a driver. Mm-hmm. I see us being 30 plus percent more efficient than most people because we care about our people. And mm-hmm. our people care about the customers, they care about quality, they care about timing and all those things. And so I just think that was one of those pivotal things. And today we still have to really continue to be conscious and, and be introspective of like, when are we being maybe overly cautious to, to risk? Because so it's, it's a conversation we have a lot now from that. So you approached that situation, which was a risky situation. Your dad's, hey, I'm coming back from Florida. I want to be a part, I want to sit at the table and be a part of the conversation. So th- this is a big contract. There's some risk. It, but you handled and mitigated that risk, or actually, I'd say you even leaned into that risk, not with reckless abandon, but with intentional thought and design and data. You dug deep to get data that other people weren't were missing or not uh, privy to, and it and enabled you to maximize the value at that particular time. So is that what you're doing now as you're getting older? Do you, and because of your time, you mentioned YPO, you mentioned your Harvard experience, and you're still uh, in the program. Are you, is that how you're leaning into those risky situations or taking risk, but being very thoughtful and methodical about it? So I think one of the things, yes, but one of the things I can say to think about that is, is I looked at risk. I can connect the dots. I think if then they, if somebody said, Hey, what's your secret power mm-hmm. They're my superpower, mm-hmm. it's connecting the dots. And I didn't realize it until probably two or three years ago. Really? I was having a relationship. I was having a conversation with one of my, one of my good friends, a guy named Mark Kramer. He, he did a couple of years in the program as well as been through the OPM program. Oh, I know Mark. He's a great guy. Yeah. And so Mark, Mark and I were having a conversation and Mark's an engineer and really smart guy. Most people consider him a really intelligent guy. And so Mark says, Hey, I, I want to pick your brain on something. Do you have some time next Tuesday at 10 o'clock? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, but we can do it right now too. He's like, no, next Tuesday, 10 o'clock. He's very structured mm-hmm. and thinks completely different than me. And so I'm like, okay, next Tuesday at 10 o'clock. And it, let me frame up Mark a little bit. So I've got a couple of friends, Mark, another guy, Brian, that's an engineer, just some really smart engineers. And Kim says to me, my wife, it's really weird. So those guys are so much smarter than you. I'm surprised they want to hang out with you all the time. <laughs> and so we, let's set the baseline. Yeah. She thinks most people think they're really smart. They're yeah. really smart. Our I'm wives know us pretty well, don't they? <laughs> exactly. So, so anyways, I'm not as smart, but Mark's really smart. So Mark wants to have this conversation with me. Hold on. Let me just say, I'm going to disagree with your wife. I know Kim, she's awesome, but I'm going to, you're, you're a wicked smart dude. So I'll just, I'll give you that. Go ahead. So anyway, so one of the days, no, I, I Kim's, Kim is apologist. She hates yeah. when I use that example out yeah. there too. But anyways, so Mark and I have this conversation and he goes through, here's my challenge and he outlines it all. And I said, okay, what about this? And it's a short 10 to 15 minute conversation. He says, what about these things? And he frames up the, the conversation and I go through, and I think I came up with like 13 or 14 ideas mm-hmm. and we get done with that. And he's dude, it's only been like 
20 minutes. He's like, I hate you. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, so out of your ideas, he's like, I had two of them. He's like, I think I have 12 new ideas here. He's like, do you know how much time I've spent thinking about this? And I'm like, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, literally, I scheduled time to think. He's like, I would come to the office, block off my schedule, give my EA my phone, and I'd go in and I'd think about something for, you know, an hour, maybe two hours, write down everything that came to mind. And mm -hmm. I did that multiple times. He's like, and that doesn't come to time. That's just technically where I've actually scheduled. Then I think about the car and all those other places. He's like, you just rambled off. He's like, you have such a capacity to connect the dots of things that people don't see. And so I think that was the first time, and this was probably four or five years ago that we had that conversation where I really realized, wow, I do see things mm -hmm. like that other people don't see. And, and, I, and I didn't really recognize them at them. And I think that's where I, when you're talking about risk. I can see things that maybe everybody else doesn't see ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And it comes really natural to me a lot of times. So I'm the creative guy that I tell people all the time, no, like if you need a bunch of ideas, I'll give you 10 of them. They won't all be good ones, but mm -hmm. I, believe me, you, you'll get 10 different ideas for sure. It, and so I think that's where just recognize that about myself and to understand myself better. I started realizing, especially when you get really technical guys, the engineering type, I really compliment them. In fact, mm -hmm. I just hired a president in the last year. And with all this experience and understanding myself, I picked somebody that was completely different than me, very similar to Mark's personality profile or disc profile. And it's just been a great compliment. And so that's where I think understanding yourself, understanding risk, the thing that drives me crazy, I'll have some friends that are like, oh, Ryan's such a huge risk taker, this and that. And I literally, it's like nails on the chalkboard. It really frustrates me because I've thought through it so many different ways. So many different risks, what's really going to happen. And I think I really understand the risk most of the time, uh, you know, and so I try and I'm one that, you know, I, I'd say I've been told I, I get range, mm -hmm. you know, I can be hanging out with our painters and I can, you know, my wife laughs and I'll go to Dow one day and the same afternoon I'll have a meeting with you know, the bank or a board meeting and I'll change. And so the ability to, for me to get data from a lot of different areas, I think is really helpful too, you know, and I think people are willing to share their authentic, real opinions. And so I, I get good data points to make good decisions is what is, I think one of my, I said, I, I, I feel very blessed to be able to do that. And I, and I think I did that for years, not knowing it. I would just do it. And I think I, I got lucky a lot of times. Now I understand that power and try to maximize it by really getting all the different data points and bring them together for, mm -hmm. for a good decision. I, I see so many people in life, maybe I, let me rephrase that. I've come across a, a few that really have never discovered their secret power, their superpower. And it's always painful to see someone struggling through and really not know where they're gifted. And it's always cool to see somebody who has discovered it and then is leaning in and leveraging it for the benefit of their family and their business. But at the same time, do are there ever times where you're needing ideas where you're so co close to the problem or so close to the issue where you feel like you're having a difficulty coming up with a new idea where you reach out to what, whether you're one of your forums or what some of your classmates and you're getting different perspective, how important is different points of view and perspective to help you solve some of these big, any issue in life? Like you were doing that for Mark, right? Like you sat down, you were a, a different person with a different point of view coming to the table, helping him solve that problem. Do you do that at all within your business or do you generally find that you're able to connect the dots on your own? Well, no, I think it's exactly that. In fact, I think the secret power for me is I have no problem picking up the phone. I'd mm -hmm. say I'm a really good communicator. In fact, I call people all the time and want to pick their brain, want to hear how they think of different perspectives. I'm very slow to draw an opinion. I'd say a lot of people see me as a fence sitter, whether it's 
politics or whatever else you want to be like, I really want to hear both sides of it and mm. try to figure out what, where's the angle that people aren't seeing because they're convinced that they're right in this way or whatever it might be. And so now that's one of the, the big things that I, I love to do. I love to hear different viewpoints. And I think that's where HBS, I've just been so drawn to that. I'm so super curious that I love hearing everybody's mm. viewpoint. And when you can find those little nuggets, it's super rewarding. One of the things that you know, as you're sharing these stories, that just reminds me that you're an individual with uh, a lot of humility and a great deal of emotional intelligence. I think a leader that's able to do that and lead the way that you do, you, you have to have emotional intelligence and, and humility. And, I, and it brings me back to that video that I watched and your dad, you're talking about a story that your dad had, he was telling you when you were maybe a, a, a young boy, maybe not a little boy, but young boy, and you were asking your dad, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, asking your dad, what does he do? And a lot, and you were talking about a lot of people can get really eaten up with it. It's very important. They want to talk about their titles. I'm the CEO, I'm the founder, I'm whatever. And your dad told you stories, no son, I'm a painter and, and, and I'm the, I'm the best painter. And when you're the best painter, there's plenty of ways for you to be able to, lots of margin for you to make money. Your dad had simplified it all the way down, but he knew he's like, I'm a painter and I'm the best. And as you're, as you're telling that story, I was like, well, this is, this had a, a really important impact on Ryan as a young boy. And he continues to lead with that humility and authenticity and that insight. I see how you, on the, on your website, as you and I have talked in the past, how you put your employees first how you care about your employees and staff. And it's, you don't lead that it's all about you, but it's about others. And with that type of humility, tell me a little bit about that story and what, an impact that had on your life that your dad shared with you. I think bad when I think back to that, it makes me think about how like school was so hard for me. Mm -hmm. I never felt smart. I felt like I was always working so hard just to get B minuses or just really to just get by and everybody else like A's came easy. A lot of my friends and I just really had to work hard. I, I now understand I'm ADD, that never helped. Mm -hmm. Dyslexic, a touch. So those challenges, I think, helped with my creativity. Mm -hmm. But no, it's like school was always hard. And so that's why I was like, I wanted my dad to be like, no, I'm the CEO, I'm the president. But he just, he, he played to what it was. He's mm -hmm. not, nah, I'm just a painter. He's like, if I'm the best at it, just be the best at what you do, son. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it's those values when you learn those young, I think were really helpful. But for me, that allows me to connect with literally our blue collar workforce mm -hmm. that like, listen, I get that you don't feel that smart some days. Like I felt that way my whole life. Yeah, me too, right? Yeah, it's finding your niche of where are you smart? We mm -hmm. all have gifts and it's understanding what those are mm -hmm. and leveraging those and then surrounding yourself with people that you trust that'll take care of you. I mean, if you're awful with, for me, I can't spell anything. I tell my team all the time, if if it was a test to be like, how good a speller? Well, two decades ago, I could have never had my role because it was in a spell check. People yeah. would be like, this guy's not even, and he's yeah. got an eighth grade. So actually, I figured out one of my spelling capacities. It was in like seventh grade. It was, that was when my daughter passed me with her spelling class. I'm like, oh, that's a tough word. I don't, I <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to do that one. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think just ha when you're really weak at something and when you lean in, you re you have to have humility. So at the end of the day, that's where I think a lot of my humility came from, not being able to spell, not thinking I was smart enough, but then realizing like we've all got different gifts, I think. But it's hard to put that guard down and say, hey, I'm not good at that. Mm -hmm. Most people don't do that. They go through their whole life trying to be something that they're not. And I think when you can let that guard down, be your authentic self. And then you disarm people around you. I think everybody else, I'm not great at this either. We've talked about probably imposter syndrome mm -hmm. before. And I think for me, I had that for a long time. And when you talk about it openly and 
in forum and other areas, that's when you start to just realize we all have gifts and we all have challenges and, and just understanding where you are in that and leverage your gifts and the things you enjoy to do. And I always found too, like when you're stuck at something, it means you're probably not good at it. Mm-hmm. And, and when you finally get to the point now where you're blessed because we've got size company, go hire somebody that wants to do that. Somebody else is likely going to get energy off of that, which would mm-hmm. steal my energy. So it's, yeah. go find that person that gets really excited. I like Excel spreadsheets. I've got a guy that works for me that's absolutely fabulous with him. I don't know if you know this, but on ESPN, they actually have a weekend where it's like they just do pivot tables and spreadsheets and you watch people compete on it. No way. Which I didn't know this, but like literally Colin came to work one day and was telling me about it. And I'm like, he loves it. Like, why would I spend this energy on a spreadsheet? Like I can do it, but he gets so much joy out of it. So I give him. So it's like a sport. Yeah. And and he's fabulous. So he loves it. He loves teaching it a little bit and everything else. So that's where you just start to realize I could grind away at it and I I can put a good spreadsheet together. In fact, Kramer, at one point, Mark, when we were talking, we had an investment together and I modeled out something. Wow, that was, I I didn't think you had that in you. I did, but it took me 10 days to put that one together. Somebody else that loves it puts it together in three hours. And Mm -hmm. so understanding that we don't always have to do the hard, the the hard work, figure out where where your talents are and play in that space. Do you have ways in which you help your staff or your employees find what their gifting is and lean into that gifting. I can see you're articulating it so right now, you see it so clearly in yourself. And, and I know the research that I've done on your company and the times that you and I have talked about your business, but culture is so important to you. Taking care of your people is so important to you. It's why you've got this iconic company. I can't wait to tell people a little bit about the projects that you're doing. Cause I know in the back of their mind, you're thinking, okay, Ryan Niles, industrial coatings. Okay. He's a painter. Does he, is he painting houses? Is it, what is he painting? I'm like, no, we're talking like the biggest projects around America is what your team is doing. And you're painting the university of Michigan football stadium, the largest football stadium in the country. I know it pains you for me to give them a little bit of credit because you're a Michigan state guy, but you also painted the Michigan state stadium and the Las Las Vegas Raiders football stadium. And, So I want to talk about all this, but in the midst of you leading this company, what what are you doing to help your folks understand their natural gifting and leaning into that so that they get joy out of what they're doing at work and as you're helping your staff? I think it starts with just literally just like disc files and Myers-Briggs and those kind of understanding ourselves that when we started this journey, probably eight years ago. Most of our workers, after they got out of high school, they haven't done anything really better themselves since then. Maybe they've had an OSHA class. Mm -hmm. And so we're just focused on learning. So we do two retreats a year, one in the spring, one in the fall. One's usually a technical training. One's usually more of a soft skills training. And when we did that, we learned a couple of things. One, when we first did it, we realized a lot of my scaffold team, for example, they're very high C's. They're very high compliance. Mm -hmm. If they don't put that that last scaffold pin in, People could die. Yeah, you know, so that's life and death. Mm-hmm. And so for them to understand, like, hey, this is why I like building scaffold. This gives me joy. And they, I think people didn't understand that. So I think it's teaching them to understand themselves is the first start of it. Mm-hmm. The other part for me is, like I said, reading was always hard. A lot of these guys are baby D or in gals and so forth. It's having them understand we can learn in different mediums today. Oh, it's beautiful. And so for me, it's, listen, I got out of high school or once I got out of college, I don't think I read a book for 10, maybe 15 years. I hated reading. But it's what I realized with Audible. I love Audible. Give me an Audible. Give me your podcast. I'll turn that thing up to 1.3 or 1.4. If I'm really in a good mood, my brain's going smoking. Yeah. And I'll create through some media and yeah. I love it. And I'm learning it. And I'm, I'm growing. And so I think telling everybody like, hey, it's okay. Like, if you didn't like studying, I didn't either. Mm-hmm. In fact, I didn't look at anything, but like I challenge you to read some of these books about, you know, really what makes an impact. 
mm-hmm. you know, the, and that kind of leads me into, you know, something else I want to chat about too, is one of the cases we had was a, a case called Barry Waymother. And it was a, a leader uh, named Bob Chapman mm-hmm. that wrote a book called Everybody Matters. Mm-hmm. And on the, you'll usually ask at some point, what's your favorite book? Everybody Matters was the one that was like the most impactful to me. Now, it won't be most impactful to everybody, but for me, it was like how I led. And so the one thing I learned is we're all different leaders. So if you're a math guy, you're probably not going to lead the same way, we, same way I lead. You're going to lead with data, with numbers. And that's great. And that's how you should lead. That's your authentic self. Mm-hmm. For me, it was really saying, hey, I really care about people. I really want to challenge them to be their best version of themselves. Like, how do I do that? And Bob's book gave me the courage to do that. And one of the things we did is when I said, hey, I'm not worrying about what percent is our overtime this year and what's our insurance pre looking at all the numbers. I just started going out and being like, hey, Bob, what's going on work? How can I help you? What are you doing to better yourself? And I don't, it doesn't matter if it's for work, for whatever. What are you doing to just be a better version of Bob Mm -hmm. next year than this year? Mm -hmm. And having those kind of conversations Two things happen. One, growth in sales went like this and growth in profitability actually followed, which that wow. doesn't normally happen in companies like us. You, you look at most charts, the sales grow, but the profitability fades. And so they're like, later they're like, oh God, we, we used to do great at 10 million. We made a bunch of money. Now we went to 25. We make less money. We made it 10. What are we doing? And we've climbed and made more mm. profit and we continue to reinvest in our people. And so that's, what's really fun is giving back to, to our team members and saying, Hey, what an impact we can do. And, and most people don't do that. Most companies don't look at their people like that. Mm-hmm. Most people look at them as numbers and we do the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. We celebrate them for what they do. Great. What they want to learn, try to get them to find the place that they're unlocking their potential. So our, our purpose is to unlock potential and we do it not just in our employees, but we take it a step long, uh, deeper and we look at it about what about our vendor partners? Mm-hmm. I challenged my person team a couple of weeks ago. I said, hey, where can we pay more, more money for something? And they all looked at me like I was insane. What are you talking? We weren't, our job is to drive pricing down. I'm like, where can we pay more? And so an example we came up with is compressors. We looked at the data and we had a lot of air compressors go down last year. And when they go down, I've got a crew of six or eight people standing around waiting to work. Mm-hmm. I said, could we pay more for a compressor and guarantee uptime? Because every time they go down, we lose thousands of dollars. So mm-hmm. great job. You saved a thousand bucks on the compressor, but we lost eight grand in downtime. So mm-hmm. like, why don't we pay more for that? And getting people to think about things that way, really challenging our team. Because I think people usually go to price. Like, hey, I want to save money. And that's rarely the place you save money. And so going back to our values, care, taking the time to care about people, develop mm-hmm. these relationships, having trust that says, hey, I'm going to take care of you and we're going to do the right thing. And then we can help each other. Same conversation goes when we're meeting with a customer, whether it be Dow Chemical or Marathon or U.S. Steel. We're having the same kind of conversation saying, hey, they come and say, hey, of course, we'd like you to lower your your, your hourly rate. And it's like, time out. I always say, I always ask them or I challenge our team to ask them, what are your KPIs this year and how do we get you promoted? And they're like, what? No, this is a conversation of you lowering your price. I'm like, it's the wrong question. The, the conversation is, how do we get you promoted? Saving a dollar on my, I'm toilet paper spend to mm. Marathon and these big companies. If yeah. we can come up with an idea and that saves them money because we understand their business a little bit better, that's driving value. Yeah. And so that's what we've done that. And we've done that with our customers time and time again by inventing things, by coming up with different ways to rig things. So it's really getting every brain in the game. And I can't tell you how many stories where I've really helped people get promoted. We did some stuff for Caterpillar a few years back where we would do a crane bay. We'd paint one of these big overhead crane bays and we actually engineered scaffolding that would go on top of the crane and you could put eight or 10 guys on top of there. Now you've got eight or 10 guys competing to spread out. The old way would do would be have 10 lifts in there, 
super inefficient. And so some of our highest margin work that we have, our customer's lowest price, like everybody wants. The customer ended up saying this was a job that was supposed to take several weeks to do. We did this in a long holiday weekend, this job. Everybody couldn't believe it was done, which allowed them to manufacture more product, which made even more money for them. So it's really getting people to just step back and be like, you're asking the wrong question. If you bring us on and say, hey, we just want to lower your price, wrong question. Let's start over. Let's understand what's really creating value. And I think so so many people in our industry just come in and say, okay, we'll knock off 50 cents. And what do they do? You pay your people less. And then what do they do? They get complacent. And and so it's just the the negative spiral versus the positive spiral. And we've been on, since that first opportunity where we increased our pricing with one of our customers, we've been on the positive spiral and generated a ton of value for both sides in the last six, seven years. And it all starts with you asking the right questions and being inquisitive enough. Like you, you've mentioned that multiple times you're, that in, in this conversation that you're curious, right? You, you're inquisitive and you're asking the right questions. One of the things that I always admire about leaders that I kind of respect and look up to, they're, they're always individuals who are just asking unique questions, taking time to be a little bit inquisitive and trying to see the world through a different angle. And because you're doing that and your competitors aren't, they're just walking in with a checklist. Yep. Here's the quote, you're unlocking a ton of value. That's a, I absolutely love that. It's, it's been fun the last few years when you can sit down and have those conversations. The, the challenge now is we're really trying to get everybody in the company thinking that way. So now right. as you're starting to build the company to scale, it's, it's getting those trainings in. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where you just realize one of the books I've read is mindset. I'm just shifting that mindset mm-hmm. and giving people that opportunity to start thinking that way. And that's what today I get so much joy of when you get somebody that literally was a painter or scaffold builder or roofer a few years ago. And now they're in like a leadership or a management position and how they've just shifted what they see for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like seeing le- these leaders that, that didn't see the opportunity that they have in front of them. That's really cool watching them succeed and, and start to develop those skills. They've got to be super excited being a part of a, an incredible company like this, that's giving them the opportunity to learn and grow, live out their authentic self and lean into the gifting that they naturally have. And at the same time, they're doing amazing work. I want you to be able to tell the audience these amazing projects that you're uh, tackling all across the United States, iconic uh, sport, sporting venues, big businesses, but paint the picture. Okay. To use that metaphor. Okay. (laughs) I I did it on purpose. Paint, Paint the picture of what it is that Niles Industrial Coatings is doing to tell people these awesome projects. Yeah, so we've done a lot of the, the, the sporting venues that you've discussed, but our big customers, our bread and butter is really the industry that runs the country. So it's the Caterpillars of the world. It's mm-hmm. the General Motors of the world. It's the Ford. It's the Stellantis. It's uh, Marathon. It's U.S. Steel. We've done fuel tanks at LAX airport to Florida. So we do them kind of coast to coast. I think last year we were in 18 states. So we work all across the country. And it's really just bringing better solutions for these guys and mm-hmm. these companies, these guys and gals. And so that's really our focus now. And so it's been, it's fun. We get to work with some great companies. And the biggest challenge I think we have is getting into these companies is they usually look at our industry as an unsophisticated industry mm-hmm. and don't always let us into the room to help them solve their problems. So every time we have a relationship where we get into the room and because they're solving problems, our relationship just goes, accelerates through the, through the relationship. General Motors has been a you know, good partner. In fact, that was one of my dad's biggest customers. I always tell people I got to go to college because of General Motors, because we did, we were in so many of their facilities through the years. I mean, mm-hmm. if there's four plants in the North America, we've not been in, I'd be surprised. Wow. We've been in all of them at one point or another. Wow. And that's been a great customer. And, and I lead into that talking about 
how lucky we got. Our business started out in painting. We talked a little bit about, mm-hmm. then we got into scaffolding and back in teen, we got into roofing and I, and this is a story I want to share. Yeah, yeah, please. Just being at the right place and, and seeing opportunities. So at that point I just put a board in place. And one of the things Laura, that we talked about was said, Hey, let's stay focused on what Niles does. Let's make sure what we do, let's do the same thing every time and get really consistent results. Cause mm-hmm. that's the one thing as a contractor. You have a bunch of great jobs and then you have a job where you lose a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Raider Stadium was an example for us. We got crushed there. One of those things, like when I tell people the story, it's like the world's an unfair place. And as a contractor, you can just get crushed. And that's why sometimes your margins, you got to have room for that beating that you occasionally get. Mm-hmm. So anyways, we, boards challenge me, stay in your lane, do the things you guys do best. So I have one of my key guys, one of my mentors, a guy named Paul Meisner calls me and he says, Hey, I've got this roofing job. They're doing this fluid applied roof coating. I think we should do this job. So Paul, you've got like $4 million worth of work. This is down in, for General Motors down in Spring Hill, Tennessee that year. Like it's more work than you've had backlog work than just like, go make money at that. What are you doing? Like, we don't need to do this for me. Like, no, but I think we can do it. I'm watching these guys do it. They're getting stuff all over the price. They don't cover right. I just see a lot of places we can be way more efficient than the other guys. And I'm like, hey, stay in your lane. Stay in your like, lane, bro. Stay in your lane. Go do the painting work. We're not doing roofing. Listen, make sure you, did you hear me? Yeah, yeah. stay in my lane. Yeah, okay. I'll stay in my lane, right? Fast forward, he calls me probably 90 days later. Hey, Ryan, look at this GM library project. That's a GM library. So look under me. Of course, we've got every job the company does. Mm-hmm. And so I look under Paul and sure enough, he's like, yeah, well, he's like, what's the contract? Oh, it's like 160 grains. Like, yeah, yeah, that's the one. He's like, what's the cost? And I'm like, oh, it's right around a hundred. He's, like, yeah. he's like, we should be all done today. He's like, we made really good money on that job. I'm like, wow, that's really good money. I'm like, what job is he? He's like, I did that roofing job. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I told you to stay in your lane. I mean, no, but like, I thought you meant like my lane was like making money and you know, I know how to make money. And so yeah, I, I'm like, here's such. Oh, I, I love right? that guy's moxie. That is awesome. And so anyway, so at the end of the day, it's probably two, three weeks later, I'm having a conversation at a friend of mine at General Motors and he's like, Hey, this roof coating, this fluid applied, we've been working with it for about four years now. And it's really starting to work well for us. He's, but the challenge is I've got two suppliers that are doing it and they're mom and pop guys, and I don't know if they're going to be able to scale, and it's really working. Would you guys look at getting into this? Because you guys have been such great partners with us for the several many decades. I said, yeah. I said, yeah. I said, the interesting thing is we did a job for you guys down at this job. He said, which one? I'm like, the one down for you. That was you guys? He's like, that was one of the best ones. He's like, I didn't know that was you. They got great feedback. Everything went great. Quality was good. This and things. I didn't know it was you. He said, oh, God, this will be easy. Said, You'll be easy to get in the system, mm-hmm. get everything queued up for next year. So we literally went that job, 160000 the next year we did 7 million in roofing. Next year we did 14 million. Then we did 28, I think it was. And it's just been a huge growth engine for us. It's now roughly 50% of our revenue with some of our major customers. We're doing a bunch with American Electric Power, a bunch with General Motors, a bunch with, with Ford, with Dow Chemical. And it's just been a great niche that we've rolled into. And we're, do, we're doing a lot of it with a lot of that painting knowledge that we mm-hmm. had and working with these roofers to really do that. And it's just been one of those places to where installing these roofs we're restoring roofs you're taking an old roof and restoring it to its case wow and it's been interesting because it's just a new technology that a lot of the roofers are not embracing and and we're doing really well and it's been just a great area of growth for us and it's and i think that's where you've got to be humble enough to like when your team sees something i, th- I think at school i've heard a lot of times you, you got to give luck a chance we gave luck a chance he tried it it, it was a great opportunity and now that's one of, one of the biggest things we're doing is we're scaling the heck out of our roofing because it's a great solution for customers. That's amazing story. And I'm, I'm sure that the guy who stayed in his lane making money for you 
got a good bonus for that insight and helping grow a new business vertical for the for the company. It's interesting that right now I'm seeing so many businesses, the world is changing so rapidly and so many things are happening that businesses are having to pivot. They're having to make leaps. They're having to make adjustments. And it's just, it's cool to see how you saw this other vertical that you could get into that could be, and it actually was a, a guy on your team who, who saw that vertical and you pivoted into it. And sometimes it's going to work out. Sometimes it doesn't. But I believe that companies today can't just accept the status quo, but they've got to be looking for those new territories of growth. Do you agree with that? 100%. And I think you got to realize, like, they're going to fail. We, we did a job. Hurricane Katrina came through back whenever that was, probably 2004, five-ish. Mm -hmm. It was a couple of years after I was running the business. And we thought we we're going to chase some storm tree grinding, mm -hmm. all this stuff. Yeah. That bought a $200,000 grinder, was going to grind these trees up. It was an absolutely awful decision. Awful. In fact, when I reflect back on that one, and I remember at some point talking to my dad about it, him and I had a conversation about something and he's, oh yeah, I knew that was a really bad decision when you were getting into that. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why didn't you tell me that? We caught like, that cost us like tons of energy, brain power. I think a lawsuit at one point down mm -hmm. there with trying to get paid. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all this stuff. But at the end of the day, when we got all done, I think it cost us 200 grand. I'm like, I still feel guilty as mm -hmm. a 50-50 partner. Like, I should pay you that other 100 because it was my stupidity. And he's yeah. like, oh, no, like, I knew that was going to be a bad idea. So that's how you learn. Mm -hmm. You have to have those beat-down mistakes to know what to know how much it hurts. But hopefully, you don't stop being curious. I think for me, it was this, I've always been curious. And it's okay. That was my most expensive learning lesson. Now it's try to, how do we learn quickly? And, and fail quickly, right? And make those mistakes quickly. And so I challenge my team all the time. Like, listen, you know, when you guys screw something up, raise your hand. Like mm -hmm. you think you've screwed something up. Like I've spilled a drum of paint. Like I, when you're shoveling paint, that's a bad day. So when somebody mm -hmm. spilled a, a gallon of paint, it's like, hey, no big deal. What'd we learn? Okay, how, how do we get the rest of the team to learn that? In fact, that, that gives me another story. We just refinished our parking lot in our building here a year, a couple of years ago now. After COVID, we completely remodeled the building. And there was a, some safety yellow that was spilled in our drive, in our brand new, like it was literally asphalt, like the week before. Mm -hmm. so came in and saw that was spilled. And I'm like, hey guys, like who spilled the paint? And everybody's sheepish about, oh God, the boss is here. I don't mm -hmm. know about that. I'm like, who spilled it? He says, one of our guys, I'm going to go clean it up. I'm like, how are you going to clean it up? I'm going to get some thinner. I'm going to do this. And I said, well, that's not how you want to do it. Like, what, how do you know? You're the CEO. I'm like, because I've spilled a lot of paint in my life. I said, the right answer is go get a, go on the shelf, go find an old gallon of black paint. Go get a handful of dirt, mix that all together, get a broom that we should have been throwing away, bring one of the brooms out, and you'll be done in 10 seconds. But it's like sharing those kind of learnings. Like we've mm -hmm. all made those mistakes, but how do you fix it? Yep. I, I look at that, that if you don't do that, I could have had a good young guy grab a can of thinner. Maybe he's got the right PPM. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's got it. Now he's created a safety issue. He's created an environmental issue. All these just different things about having these guys that have made these mistakes mm -hmm. and how you learn from it, how you clean up. It's so much more efficient. And so... Those are the stories that I share with my guys all the time. Share your mistakes. When something yeah. like that happens, we've all done it. I said, that was a gallon. You wiped that up with a rag. I was yeah. shoveling. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that completely different conversations. And I was shoveling. I was terrified my uncle was going to come out. If he came out, oh my God, I would have been, likely I would have not been paid for the day. I would have been embarrassed, humiliated because he led a little differently. It wasn't always out of curiosity. And, oh, that's a good lesson. Let's make sure we all document that. I was like, you know how much money you just cost me? He's going to let the whole family know you're going to be hearing about it in the, the next four, uh, Fourth of July holidays, right? Remember that time Ryan spilled paint all over the driveway? So, yeah, sure, sure. You, you, a second ago, you mentioned that you view yourself as a technology company, or you, you mentioned technology in there. And I, I want to read 
Uh, this is what you have listed on your website, but uh, NIC is best in class safety coatings and technology company, or is it right? And I like, I, I thought that was really interesting that you added in there you, you, how you view yourself as a technology company. You're looking for new and innovative technologies within your space. Can you unpack that a little bit? And when did that happen in your, and in, in how are you doing that? Yeah, I think the technology is a couple ways. One, we started out early on with, we did some stuff and we're not doing it currently with IVR, integrated voice recognition. A decade ago, people would do service work. They would call when they got there. They'd call when they'd finish. They'd tell us how many square feet they got. So really just tracking kind of production in a really interesting way. So that's one of the places to utilize technology. Today, it's like, I know right now we've got a, a job going where we've got some tanks down in, I believe, Bloomington, Illinois, that are being sandblasted with a robot that's blasting these areas. It has five nozzles on it. And oh, wow. so the production is way more than a human can do. And so we've done some of those with technology. In fact, we did LAX Airport was a robot that would blast on the inside of the tank. We use that. And, and that, that's a story that I share. And my dad's always like, why are you telling that one? That was one that we were a little too early. The robot worked great, but it wouldn't leave to the next area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're always trying to find things that are easier, safer technology, dri technology drivers and, mm -hmm. that are making things more efficient. And a lot of those things, they're coming. And we're the first ones working on that. You know, we've, we've had different ways to where we've done blasting. We, we were one of the first to work with a company called Graco to work with their vapor blasters, and which reduced a lot of the sand media, which made the cleanup a lot easier and blast with more water and, and vapor. So yeah, so we've always been one that's always embracing what those new opportunities are. I, I know most of our competitors are just waiting for the technology to see how it shakes out, which ones make it, which ones don't. And we're just curious. We've got some really curious mechanic engineers that work for us and are always driving how, how do we build this and make it really efficient for our team but yeah it's always been a kind of a driver for us well we're talking right now an awful lot about the the successes and the excitement of growing and leading this big company of motivated partners and staff members and leveraging new technologies and these iconic projects that you're doing all around the country as you s stated you're helping the industry that runs america right at the same time i also know that entrepreneurship and, bi and business leadership comes with all sorts of obstacles and sometimes what feels like a life and death situation. I always like to hear uh, how leaders navigate and lead during those types of trials. Uh, you mentioned one earlier, right, right, right around 2002 when you were starting the company, but very quickly on, I want you to maybe go back down memory lane, very quickly on in 2008, 2009. So you're in what, six years, seven years, all of a sudden we have the great financial crisis and your video out there, you highlight that there was like a, maybe a little bit of a liquidity crisis for you and the company. You had some loans maybe that were getting called in and you went out and you had to go talk to maybe, was it close to 30 different banks where yeah. you, yeah, where you were going, oh, my data is correct. All right. So 28 different banks looking for funding. This has got to feel like, I remember I was in Flint, Michigan at the time and I remember it felt like the world was coming to an end. Right. Things like plants are shutting down. People are, are, are getting laid off. I had a lot of friends that were working at General Motors and were really concerned. What's going through your mind as you're trying to save your company? You're probably you're making decisions with incomplete information. It, it, tell me how you navigated that situation and what did you learn from it? So that was not fun times. Right? I'm grateful for because those, those are the ones that really created the grittiness that I think not just myself had, but a lot of the team members that made it through that tough time with us. We had to make tough decision from fire people or take pay cuts. Sometimes it was both and it was just really hard times. But like you're saying, I, I had an industrial cleaning company at the time down in Northwest Indiana. 
and our banking was with uh, Fit Third, and Fit Third actually called our note. And it took me a year to get through that bank workout. Multiple different banks I met with. Finally went to National City, who was our bank on the painting side mm-hmm. at the time. So after a year, finally found them as a bank. They had the painting side. Now they were going to pick up the industrial cleaning. So I believe at the time it was about $4 million. It was like a $3 million line of credit for the industrial cleaning company and the million dollars for the building. So we closed in December of 09. In February of 10, I got another letter from now National. It was now PNC. National City got bought by PNC. And so PNC said, we want our money back. And so after a year of a bank workout, all these different banks, just such a hard time. I then was dealing with PNC. Like I said, it was like 45 days later where I thought I like finally like had a path. I wasn't mm-hmm. going to have to be worried about payroll every single week. When you're worried about payroll every single week for a year, it's an awful feeling. It's, you really feel like a fraud and you're out there telling everybody, go work hard. It's going to be great. And if you don't know if you're going to be able to pay people every week, it's, it, it, it wears on you. Yeah, you I mean, go back into your office and you like close the door and you're like, how in the world am I going to make this? Uh, most mornings where my daughter Avery was, I think two at the time. And I remember I used to just tell her all the time, I'd lay on the floor and be like, listen, you're probably going to have to pay for your own college, but your dad loves you. And luckily, even if dad doesn't make it, I'm not going to jail. Thank God for bankruptcy laws. I think at the peak, I was worth negative about three and a half million bucks. And so it was an awful time. I think having a child to get you through and Mm -hmm. bring you back to, hey, what you're doing is just business and just a transaction. So needless to say, PNC calls our no. It takes me about six months to work out with them. Their consultants are in your office every week, looking at your cash, telling you what you're going to pay. Sweep any accounts. It was like, I, I've been through it all. We got served all the time. My wife would be like, so Dorm, like, yeah, they're just doing their job. Like, and we're not doing anything that I'm going to go to jail for. I just suck at running a business. And at that point, actually, my dad and I had a pretty interesting conversation. He was spent most of the time in Florida and he said, Hey, the dad and I had a rule. He's like, you've got a problem. Don't call me. This was a conversation we had probably four or five years before time. I thought he was being a jerk. He's like, no, he's like, I trust that you know how to run the business. So at the end of the day, you have a problem. And I was like, yeah, I've got a problem for two weeks. I haven't slept. He's like, don't call me. A month? He's like, don't. He's like, you can call me when you're going to have to cut my pay when I'm not getting paid anymore. Because there's always time in the business that doesn't have that. So mm-hmm. this was about that time. Okay. So dad comes back from Florida after being down there and he says, how are things going? I said, not great. Second bank workout. I think I might go do something else. You know, I think I've, maybe I'm not meant to be an entrepreneur. So far the last two years, I had my house almost paid off. Now I owe well over a million bucks on it. Put mm-hmm. all that money in the business. Not only have I not made money, you're losing. I paid a million dollars to go to work mm-hmm. the last 12, 14 months, whatever it is. So that shows you how smart I am. Mm-hmm. Like not only he's less than you got to always bet on yourself. And first he says, what am I going to do? So well, this conversation wasn't really about you. I was telling you about me. I said, yeah. So I said, I don't know. Like he's, I love what we're doing. And I said, yeah, I'm sure you do. You're in Florida. I'm doing and you're getting paid. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, so this isn't fun. So. So needless to say, after a little, some soul searching, he had some good wisdom. He said, listen, things are never good forever and things are never bad forever. You're going to get through this. I've been through some dark times. Let's figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so he's, listen, I'll bridge you to help you get out with some of the bank stuff. And I said, Dad, I, I know some rich people. Like, that doesn't help us. There's no work. And, and to put it in perspective, it, we forget how bad it was. And those people that weren't in business then at the time, I finally went to my bank. So my dad agreed to bridge. And mm-hmm. so he was going to take about a third of his money and help us get out of this situation. At the time, I remember telling him, I said, listen, make sure you go home and talk to mom about this because I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. And like, I've been eating ramen noodles. Literally, it was like that mm-hmm. time in our life where we were really cautious in every decision we made. We hadn't gone on a vacation in two years. It was as strappy as you could be. Mm-hmm. 
And dad comes back, says, no, we want to do it. So then he bridges me. We get out of the bank workout. But now we land three big jobs. This is spring of 2010. Mm -hmm. I had a million-dollar job with Dow Chemical, a million-dollar job with American Electric Power, and a million-dollar job with U.S. Steel, all of which are owner direct. So I know we're going to get paid. Half of our problems, we weren't going to get paid from the cash flow. Our business was never that bad. It was the cash. We got squeezed out of it. We had banks that wouldn't loan to us, and then I had my customers that weren't paying. General Motors went bankrupt and that, that cost us quarter million dollars to do so. We, we just kept getting hit from different directions, but we landed three great accounts. I knew we'd be paid 30 days. Mm -hmm. So I went and I had a conversation with our local bank, State Bank of Fenton. I met with this guy, Tom, who was our, our commercial lending. They'd always wanted our business. We we're always too big for them. And, but now we'd shrunk down and everything else. So Tom says, we meet at a Coney Island. And I said, hey, thinking about taking my banking out for bid and we're small enough now might be a good time for you guys to look at it. He's like, you went in the business loan? I'm like, yeah, you're in charge of commercial lending, right? He's like, yeah. He's like, but we haven't done any business loans in six months. Yep. What do you mean you've done business loans? What do you do? He's like, I've been hoping the guys in workout. I'm like, for six months? He's like, yeah. He's like, so you've done no loans. Like, We've done some car loans, but we haven't done any. I'm like, so you've done any business loans? And I'm like, and literally it was like a scene in the movie. I was like, went to the bathroom was like sweating, like yeah. water on my face. I have no idea what I'm going to do now. Yeah. So I come out and I said to Tom, I said, listen, I got these three big jobs. I need a line of credit. I'm not, I can't go to my dad and have him finance that. Mm -hmm. I already bridged all the equipment. We got no debt on the equipment now, but I'd love for you to appraise it. We need a line of credit and I'd love you to appraise all of our assets, like 15 cents on the dollar. We don't need to leverage them up that much. He's, oh my God, we've got an interim CEO. Right now, I don't know how that I'm going to make this all happen. He's like, we haven't done any business loans in six months. He's like, we've got that line of credit with you. It's one of the biggest in the whole banks. He gave me this little nugget. And I'm like, biggest in the whole banks. So now, at the, at the end of the day, I had a second mortgage on my house. It was 900 grand. It was maxed out. Two years before it was, I didn't know anything. But I put all that money in the business during that time. And, so I, and now I'd just been beaten up by banks for the last two years. And so I said to Tom, I said, yeah, that's interesting. I said, I see that we need each other. Yeah. I said, listen, I'm going to make it through one way or another. I'm too greedy. Like I've gone too far. I'm like, I'm going to pay my employees. I've lost so much money. I don't have to pay any taxes for a while. I'm going to pay some of my suppliers and I'm going to figure it out. And I hope I'm paying you as a bank. But if not, I just got to be honest, Tom, I don't see me paying my mortgage. They said, I will. Listen, I'm a man of word. Like I promise I'm going to pay you every dollar. I'll pay you interest, everything else. But I'm going to survive over the next six months and I'm going to get these jobs done, which will generate profit, which will allow mm -hmm. me, but like I need working capital in your bank. And I, it was the only time in my life where I've taken all the stress I had and I completely transferred half of me onto him. Yeah. And I, and he was like, oh my God. But the cool thing was within two weeks, we had a line of credit placed with them. The interim CEO had used to work at PNC. I found this out about six months later. He called PNC, said, why are Niles in workout? They're good guys, bad guys. And is what happened is they had 6.7% that were contractors and PNC wanted to be under 6.5%. And so is what the decision they made was the last 0.2. And the last people that came in, they figured were the least loyal. I just signed a note 45 days before. So they figured I wasn't that loyal yet. So I got cut out of business and wrong place, wrong time. You just realize the world's not fair. You can be yeah. doing all the right things and just still get kicked in the butt. And so it was, wow. so need to say State Bakes, but was a great partner for us through that. And they're still a great partner. So I've decided I never want to be a number again. I, I now have relationships up to the CEO of the bank. I've met a lot of the board members. I never want to have my note called because we were called because we were a contractor mm. and the least loyal. So it was one that it wasn't fun. Brian, I want to dive in a little bit to your family life. 
because in the midst of all this, we're talking about business and you've mentioned your wife a couple of times, giving you words of encouragement, giving you some insights. You talk a little bit about you're laying on the floor during one of your darkest hours and you're talking to your daughter, Avery. And as I follow you, you and I have been friends for a long time. Uh, when we get together in Boston, we our wives have hung out together. I see all the trips and the things that you do. You're a great father. You're a great husband. You're a family man. Family is important to you. How have you been able to build balance in your life in the midst of growing this company? It's been a, a rocket ship, but also it's had obstacles and challenges along the way. How do you juggle both? I'd say I'm not great at balance. It's both are extremes. We're either mm -hmm. with a family a lot or it's work a lot. It's, and it's probably not super balanced. We spend a lot, we do a lot of nice trips together. We do a lot of nice things together. Uh, but really during the week, like I travel a lot with a mm -hmm. YPO learning stuff, mm -hmm. business things uh, or, and so forth. So, but no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, for us, we try to have our girls, we want our girls, we say we want to be little Navy SEALs. We mm -hmm. want to be able to drop them into any situation and they that. can fit in. So whether it's, you know, a, a fancy ball or, or literally girls rolling up their sleeves and, and doing manual labor, hard work, even hopefully for the company as they get a little bit older and, and have those experiences. That, that's really been Kim and I's focus. I was really getting those, those kids that do be able to do that and to, and to be fearless. And I think that leads that we're super passionate as a family about skiing. Kim and I love, have loved, always loved it. I, I love it more than Kim. She does it to, I think, be with the family, and, but she's an excellent skier as well. But it's really cool to see my girls. I think I'll talk. The first time I heli skied, I was 40. It was like one of my bucket list items. I was really excited to get the opportunity to do it. I told Kim, I just want to go once. And after I went with a YPO friend, Frank Bear, I came back and said, oh my God, Kim, I lied to you. I want to go as often as I can afford mm -hmm. the time and the money. And, and, and I learned a couple of things about myself on that. As I learned that at 40, I had improved a lot of skiing. And what I mean by that is I improved more from 40 to 42 probably in skiing than I did from 18 to 40. And I wow. taught skiing. I was a passionate, like I said, I had a couple thousand hours, a couple thousand lessons I've taught through the years, taught skiing, I taught snowboarding, raced competitively in high school, was top 10 in the state. So super competitive, but I learned more from 40, 42. And what I realized is it's so much of its mindset. The first time I went alley skiing, I was in Alaska. It was terrifying, skiing really steep runs. I was leaning back. I wasn't in the right place. I wasn't in the right place, mainly just because I was afraid. Mm -hmm. And when I went back two years later, I went from a group with, with Frank's group, it was like 10 skiers and I was probably nine. And that was only behind one other guy that was 72 or so at the time. And when I went back two years later, I was probably one or two and it was add this mindset. So that really helped me not only in, in there, but it helped me in business too, to realize how critical your mindset is to take something that I thought I was really good at. And I, when I had a huge room to grow there mm -hmm. and I really, once I realized that for myself, I really tried to put my kids in that situation. And when you're skiing extreme conditions like that, my favorite word is you have to use your human skills. There's avalanches. There's a lot of things that have going on. You've got other skiers. You got to be thinking about what can happen, where your tra terrain traps are. Mm -hmm. There's so much to it. And in which I think works well with the way my brain's thinking and mm -hmm. analyzing all these different data points. So it's getting my girl. So my oldest Avery went heli skiing the first time at 11. And so she's super passionate skier. Last year we skied uh, Big Sky for President's Weekend, and she skied a run called the Big Cool R, which I think the first time I skied, I was probably in my mid thirties, and she just crushed it, handled it with just grace and everything else. And at what so age? We did, she was Avery was fifteen last year, oh, and just just crushed it when she did it. And so really cool to see her develop. And all my girls are awesome skiers. Ashley crushed it last year, Big Sky. 
Riley's not going to be 10 here uh, in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And Riley's, I got to beat Ash Avery down mm -hmm. the helicopter. So she's all about, Dad, when can we go holly skiing? It, but for me, I, I look back at the skiing did a couple of things for me. One, I think it was something I was pretty good at. And so mm -hmm. it's, you know, honing in first for all of us, do the things you're good at and you enjoy. Because mm -hmm. that confidence, you know, kind of breeds over into other areas of your life. And mm -hmm. I think that gave me the confidence to do some things that work that I wasn't good at, but it's like, oh, I'll figure it out like I did in skiing or whatever else. And I think I've, I realized that even more so from 40 to today. And wow. so that was a, a big thing. And so like our family, you know, works hard to do a lot of ski trips together. We're planning mm -hmm. last week, actually just last night, we were talking about Big Sky again this year and for President's Weekend and plotting those things out to do as a family. Skiing's a big part of it for all of us. I know you've done a lot of skiing in Michigan. I think you have a place out in Park City. Where is outside of the heli skiing or because you could there's probably some iconic places in Alaska or uh, around the globe that you, you've probably gone. But if you're looking at just domestic United States, where's your favorite place to go ski here in the, in, you know, in the lower 48? Probably Big Sky. Big, Big Sky. Sky like yeah. Okay. yeah. Big Sky's very spot. Okay. Awesome. But we grew up skiing. I skied at this little resort in Michigan with 400 foot of vertical from when I was five. Started skiing there when I was five. Is that you talking about Mount Holly? No, it's called that Seagull Club. Oh, okay. okay. And so I started skiing there when I was five, started teaching there when I was 12, taught little kids, 16. I taught up there like every winter for years. It was a, the place only open on the weekends. Okay. Just a re really special spot. Nice. I think I shared with you at one point, I had a partner come to me and we ended up running the place from 2012 to 17. I remember we, that. Yeah. At least with an option to buy that was one of those life learning experiences that definitely did, did not go well financially, but it was, it, it, it was a lot of fun doing it when we were doing it and it, it created a lot larger ski budget today. Yeah. Cause now right. I say we can go ski real other stuff, but yeah. the same price as we were skiing in Michigan for all those years. So yeah, that's awesome. Dang. Yeah. Talking about some of the iconic trips and things that you've done, you mentioned a, a little bit ago that there was a, that period of time where you hadn't taken a, a family vacation or two because everything, every minute of your life was investing in your business. Every penny that you had was investing in your business, shooting that gap. And I've also been able to see you on the flip side of that, where you've had some iconic trips with Kim and two of the two of my favorite ones that I'd love for you to share, maybe you, how you enjoyed it, what you did, and uh, maybe also what you learned, but there, there's one I've been thinking about uh, going on. It's the YPO trip where you go to Italy and you get in Ferraris and you drive Ferraris all over Italy. And I, I heard you tell that the story of that one. And then your wife is also really big into high fashion. You guys took a trip. It was business and pleasure. You guys went to, to Paris, I believe, and did a special retail course with the most high-end boutiques and fashion houses in Paris and learned a bunch of things there. So now you and Kim are getting to experience some really cool things. I'd love to hear about both of those trips. Yeah, no, Kim has been great. I think two things. When I think about YPO, luckily Kim and I did one of the really early on, we did a regional conference and, mm. and we did it together and a lot of good learnings from the speakers, that the people that you learn from. Kim's been a YPO fan from the beginning. In fact, in fact, I've, I've grown so much through it. When I got into Harvard, one of the things that, that she said is, I'm so happy and I'm so proud of you're in HBS the second year or third year. I think she said, I'm afraid you'll outgrow me. Like I'm home raising the kids and you're doing all this cool stuff. So we work really hard to find the YPO trip so we can go on together. So she's continuing to be challenged and grown herself. So yeah, so these supercar trips have, have led to that. We met just some really amazing people from around the world. The world just gets, in fact, I say the world's a really big place, but good people travel in really small circles. So you really meet some amazing people. I've learned so many different things from strategy, 
board member ideas, just so much stuff like it's the list is super long. But no, that that's just been a really special time for Kim and I. From the people, great dinners, super international group, people from literally all over the globe. And so no, we've really enjoyed it. Kim's been a great partner too in that. There's times when we're driving and a lot of the wives will get frustrated or the partners like, hey, you're driving too fast, you're driving crazy. And Kim's at one point, I think we were driving. She listen, I just want you to know, like you're scaring the crap out of me. She's but I can see how much fun you're having. So I just want, I'm going to close my eyes. Just tell me when it's over. And I just, but Kim's always been that way. She's been such a supportive partner and it's that ever beat me up, like always had my back. Mm-hmm. And so that was just another case of it to where she's always there for that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, I went crazy for maybe another 90 seconds and had my fun. I said, okay, we'll surreal it back in. I don't want to make this uncomfortable for you. Yeah. But later, a few years later, I took my dad on that trip and I know exactly what she's talking about. My dad, I was terrified when he was driving. And so that when you can't control something and you're driving fast mm-hmm. through Italy. So no, so those are great special trips. I think the same. Kim really wanted to do the trip to Paris. I went begrudgingly at first, but then really realized like all the things that I learned from marketing and met some other great YPOers through that trip. So I just, I brought back a lot of takeaways for the business. So just, and I think you can learn the most. And I think about back what I shared with earlier, the, the case study that Francis mm-hmm. taught was willingness to pay, but one of it was on a case study on Crest and Colgate and how they did their pricing. Mm-hmm. When really get your brain outside of like your everyday world and you see how other people are doing it. It allows you to open up your mind to be more curious and bring those things back to your business. I think so many people, I, I can tell you, my circle of friends, 90% of people will be like, so you went to Paris and were like studying Chanel and all these hybrids and you came back and they gave you ideas how to run your painting company better. And it's like, absolutely. And, and it's, that's the cool thing that I think about these experiences. And I think understanding how our brains work and how we learn in just the craziest places. So. No, we've been really blessed to, to partake in some of those things and, and brought back a lot of great ideas. Can you think of, off the top of your head, if there was any learnings that you had while you were driving around Italy? I know you're, you're having conversations with other presidents and CEOs from around the globe, but is there, were, were, were there any takeaways? Or was that just more of an enjoyable trip? You're just going and having some fun or were there, was there some education baked into that as well? Oh, no, there, there's always education big then. A lot of that was around the auto industry, mm-hmm. manufacturing quality and branding and wife. Ferrari, for example, can draw such a premium. Uh, some of my best takeaways were really like a lot of these guys ran some really big family businesses and how they transitioned them and how they treat the family and how they deal with, with some of those kind of issues. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We had a really interesting conversation one day. Hey, how much would you pay was the question to not fight with a sibling or a cousin or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Did you pay a hundred dollars, you pay a thousand dollars as you're thinking about as the company grows and like, how do you support your family as well as what's the right thing for the business too. So we've had some really deep conversations with some really multi-generational businesses. And we think in the U.S. family business to make it a, a few decades is impressive. Yeah. Some of these generational businesses are 200 years old. Yeah. And so it, that's the part for me would just really stretched my mind to start thinking, you know, what you could do for your family. How do you set them up for success? How do you continue to make sure they're humble and so, so learning from a lot of others' experiences, that place was really helpful. That's awesome. All right. So we're rounding the horn here. I've got my final set of questions for you as we hit the, the final straightaway. I use a track analogy, right? So you're a great uh, all-star Graham Blank uh, skier. While you were up on the ski slopes, I was trudging it out on the, the track. So use a, a track analogy there. What's the question that I didn't ask that I should have? With everything that you've got going on in your life, all the, the various things within your business, the things that you're passionate about, what's the question that I didn't ask that I should have? And what are, maybe another, another one is like, what are you passionate about right now? 
What, what, what excites you and motivates you, gets you up in the morning? What, what are you passionate about? So I think you got it. Right now, it's what am I doing right now with the business and culture? And right now, I'm really trying to scale like my, as we call it, CTH or, or my passion to bring the best out of people and, and have people be curious with themselves, understand themselves. Like, how do we get everybody thinking that way in the business? And so one of the things we just did is we just invested, we bought a 26,000 square foot. It's actually an old equestrian building, horse wow. barn, basically. It's, it's at 26 acres. It's not even uh, a mile and a half from my office. And it's one of those things that it's been a hard decision for me to make because it's, I haven't figured it out yet. And, and it was an expensive acquisition. And, but I, but I think back to one of our fellow ever, uh, YPRs, Wei Chen that said, if your dreams don't scare the shit out of you, they're not big enough. Mm -hmm. And so this is one I was like, okay, so I've invested in this horse barn that my vision is that you walk into this place. It's got a beautiful lobby area and everything else. And every time I describe it, I can't do it justice. We had a board meeting there last week and they're like, this is not what you describe. This is not a horse barn. This is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. But the, my goal is that you walk into this place and the whole inside arena, we're going to turf it and we're going to turn into classrooms. And what I've thought about is our construction workers, they want to learn and they want to grow when they start to get the bug here working for us. Mm -hmm. But they really hate the classroom. Like they get into our conference room, they get into a classroom. And two hours in, they want to go to sleep. These mm -hmm. guys and gals are built for working with their hands out in the field. And so getting them to realize like they're smart. And so trying to create an environment for them where my hope is that they'll walk in. Yeah, I work for this painting or roofing company. And I didn't know I went to the first training. It's like I work at Google. But you walk in and the whole thing's turf and it's got cool furniture and it's got great technology for them to learn. Mm -hmm. And we figure out a way to really get these guys so, and gals, so they come to work and they're like, yeah, I got to go to training last month and I can't wait for the next one, whatever that looks like. So that's the one that I'm, I'm working on right now. Oh, wow. I just closed that at about 30 days ago. So we're meeting with architects here. We're trying to work with the state as, as we're hoping we train just not our people, but others in the community. And so trying to see what, what opportunities out there with grants and so forth, because it's what I have in mind is it's costly and I can't figure out how to finance it all through the business or the burden it's set. Yeah. The, the, the carry on it's several hundred thousand a year. And so I'm just trying to think too. at the same time, I'm trying to not be small minded and be really thinking big saying, okay, mm. fast forward five years from now, we're running a company. It's 250 million plus. If it adds a couple percent of gross margin, the company clearly can afford it. We can mm -hmm. reinvest in our people, grow it even more. So it's one of those places that I'm a little uncomfortable, but I think that's what you got to do is you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations to grow. So that's the one that we're really working on right now. Man, that's brilliant. Uh, that is so exciting. I'm so happy for you. And I'm happy for your people. And I love the fact that you're investing in the community and just doing incredible work there. Yeah. It's uh, like I said, this is a scary one. Like most of the time back to the Scorpio, I mean, most of the times I could see the avenue of how things can get a return. This one, <laughs> yeah. it's a long shot for the return. So I've got to really be, be thoughtful through this and be responsible. And that's hard too right now with you, you figuring and, and, and recession is potentially looming and to be investing in this time. So it, it's been one that I, I like you said, like a lot of people say it's a, a great risk. I've really calculated the risk. I've thought about a lot of things from cash flow and what we can do to make sure it's successful. So we're having fun and trudging ahead. There's anybody who can do it. It's going to be you. And I know you and I've had uh, multiple classes together where uh, we saw the data that showed that companies that pull back during a recession usually don't exit very well, but it's the companies that double down and invest during a recession that actually are supercharged coming out. And so it sounds like that's what you're doing. You're investing in your people, you're investing in your business. And I'm, I'm excited to see what you and the, the, the company continue to do. Yeah. 
No, we, we did that through COVID. When COVID hit, I, I always, I would do a new hire training. Every time we have new employees for Amazon Conference Channel, uh, they hopefully get in the first 30 days of working with us and share with them kind of our vision, our goals, our strategy, mm-hmm. what we're doing and how we care about our employees. And one of the slides was like, hey, when the next downturn comes, we're going to grow through it. And it was like several months into COVID. I'm like, oh, we're in the downturn and we're growing through it. We hired some of our best talented people at that time. And no, we're, we're definitely looking forward to the next downturn. Unlike 08 and 09, when I was working, we're negative, had, had no places to invest. We've, our goal is to really invest in our people and in, our, in the business in the, in the years ahead. So that's great. All right. I'm going to give you a quick lightning round before we uh, have our final question. And I know you know what the final question is going to be. It's been the same one for many of our classmates. Um, but here, quick lightning round. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I mention this? HBS professor. Rowie. Mentor. Mentor. I've had so many bad. That one's like a tough one for me. I think I've just been a sponge with so many peers. Mm-hmm. Like one of those, I'm looking at you. So you, mm-hmm. I, I, I see you as one. I just, so many of my classmates and I, I, I don't know that I've had one. My dad's been an amazing mm-hmm. mentor. Ken has been a mentor to me at times. I've just, I've been one. I've just pulled it in from so many places. So you're, you're blessed to have a lot. So that's awesome. Yeah. Favorite book. Everybody matters and who not how. Favorite country oh. to visit. Italy. Hey, best YPO experience. Best YPO experience. It's got to be HBS. HBS been so special. Okay, here's the final one. The final score of the Michigan State game this year. Oh, God. Uh, 37-32, Michigan State. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right, you're going with the upset. All right. I knew you couldn't uh, bet against your Sparties. All right. So, final question. I cannot wait to hear your answer, but let's pretend that President Biden has called you up. You're in Washington, D.C. with your wife. And he says, Ryan, I want you to motivate and inspire the American people. You're going to give the State of the Union address tonight. You get to talk to the entire country. What do you say? I think at the end of the day, it's just recognizing to our people that we have so much opportunity in this country. And for me, I, I usually am not big to get on one side of politics, Republican or Democrat. Mm-hmm. Just tell me the rules. And guess what? We'll go work really hard. We live in such a great country. We have so many opportunities. And if you start working and, and you have a desire to read and learn and grow, our country gives you every opportunity. So much more as we've learned from HBS. So we have countries that build a great business. The government takes it from them. We can build anything in this country. So if you're motivated and you treat people right and you have a desire to learn and grow and share, it's just amazing what this country will provide for you. And everybody can win. And so no, I just feel blessed to live in the country we live in. And so I would just rally people to really be thoughtful and recognize their blessings and quit complaining about whatever the issue is out there and just go put your head down and just focus on yourself and your family and all those that you touch and make the biggest impact you can on your community. But it's got to start with you. You've got to be introspective and you got to say, I look at our business and every time the company's changed, I had to change first. So Mm -hmm. for everybody that doesn't like the situation they're in, yeah, just go look in the mirror and say, what am I going to do next? I think people just underestimate the power of compounding. Mm. And when I say that, People usually are drawn to money, but, but I think within the day, it's compounding of knowledge, compounding of your relationships. I used to be so excited. If we landed a job that was $100,000, I'd be like, that's amazing. And today our company brings in jobs for millions of dollars, and I'm not even aware of it. And it's because of the trust and the integrity that, are, that stands behind what all, the, what all of our team members bring to the table. And so it's just really investing in yourself and and. To quit worrying about all the Snapchats and all, all the things out there and just believe in yourself and work together to help each other. Wow. What an encouraging word. And 
I'm sure that people who have been listening to this podcast are encouraged to see how you've been living your life. And if they follow some of the, the tips and the advice that you've shared today, first of all, by living fearless, you've lived fearless yourself. You're teaching your daughters to live fearless. And I think it's it's a little bit easier to live fearless when you know your natural gifting, your superpower, and you discussed how you discovered that and you've been leaning into it and you're helping other people discover theirs. And the fact that you're investing uh, in such an incredible project, you care about your employees, you care about your partners, uh, you're helping them to discover that so that they too can live fearless. I hope all Americans can follow your footsteps, follow your example, make a huge impact in their community like you're making a, an impact there in the mid-Michigan area. And of course, of, with all your employees all across the country, I'm just, I'm honored to know you, my friend. and. Yeah, you know, you've motivated and encouraged me today. I just want to say thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. No, thanks, Bob. You've done motivated me as well many times. It's fun when you can reciprocate to somebody. Thanks for taking the time and having me. And I was excited and nervous and I'm glad we got the opportunity to do it, have the conversation. Oh, it was awesome. All right. Blessings, my friend. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to Ryan for investing time to share with our listeners his story and learnings from his journey. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to your favorite pods. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and give us a review. That is always appreciated. Thank you for spending time with us today, and we look forward to being with you once again next week.